That was beautiful. I, I didn't want her to stop. Thank you for that. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's see, we have a few families missing. It's pretty obvious with a church this size, if a few families are missing, we all feel the impact, don't we? Well, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Some of you are thinking we'll probably be here until the rapture takes place. That's okay. I, um, I could stay in there that long probably, depending on when the rapture will come. But as far as I can see for now, we have this morning sermon and then one more sermon on this, uh, on this passage. But I could very easily stay here a little longer simply because it's the foundation of redemptive history. It's the foundation of almost every biblical truth that we, we know and build our salvation on when you talk about the covenants. And the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that the church at Corinth understands the difference between the covenants because they both have a very important place in God's plan. But we need to understand there are differences. And if we don't understand the differences properly, it can the, the covenants can serve as a trap to keep us away from God or to keep us from growing in Christ as opposed to benefiting us and propelling us into spiritual growth. And so he takes the time to explain why the new covenant is, is exceedingly more glorious than the old covenant, as glorious as the old covenant was. So I want to go ahead and read our passage in just a second, but recap, um, basically reviewing what we have looked at so far, Paul's main points is that the old covenant under the law had its place, but the purpose of the law in one sense was to show people their need for Christ. And the way that it did that was to show us that we can't keep the law. It's great, it's wonderful, but we can't keep it. And so really, without the power to enable us to keep it, all it does is condemn us. It just reminds us. So he calls it a ministry of death. But then he reminds us of the ministry of life that we have in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes into us and empowers us to keep the law, but also justifies us on the basis of Christ. Then the third point that we looked at was the righteousness that we gain in Christ. So if the old covenant just condemns us because we can't fulfill it, and we have to be right with God in order to be in the presence of God, then how do we do it if we can't do it on our own? Well, we do it. By believing in Christ who did it. We trust in the God-man who was able to obey every law. Because remember, if you break just one, you're guilty of breaking them all. Because we've defied God in some way. And this morning I want to look at another truth that Paul points out in understanding, helping us to understand the differences. It's really kind of one theme but two different sides. And that is... He uses that, the analogy or perhaps the simile of the veils. And he looks at humanity, <clears throat> God's people, or humanity really as those that are veiled and those that have been unveiled. So that's what we will unpack this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 5 through 18 again. 
Now that we are, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, I don't know that I could read that passage enough. It is so powerful, explaining what God has done for us. So we're going to look at this analogy, this idea that Paul picks up on as he as he thinks about the theological foundations of the old covenant. Something pops up, and that is this idea of veiled, and he uses it as an analogy. It's a very powerful analogy. So not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. I remember in Bible college, my Old Testament um, professor, who also was a Hebrew professor, when he read this passage, he he teared up because he went to uh, Hebrew theological un, Hebrew union theology or something. And he went, he went to Israel to li- to learn Hebrew and he got he befriended many Jewish people. And but he he as he immersed himself into their lives, he saw that this is true. He saw that the veil was still there among uh, the, the so-called or the people of God. In that sense, the ethnic people of God, he saw the veil was still there, but there, but they didn't see the true glory of God because of it. And it just brought, brought tears to his eyes. It was had an impact on me. Because this wasn't the kind of guy that teared up very often. So what's Paul talking about? Well, we've, we've been back in Exodus 32 and 34. And so I'm going to read a few scriptures. But he's referring to what happened in the book of Exodus when God delivered the people of Israel, this nation that he is building. He delivered them from bondage from the Egyptians. 
And he called them out to worship him. And in Exodus 32, perhaps you'll recall that Moses ascended the mountain. And it was a fierce sight. God was on the mountain. God called Moses forth. And he's going to make a covenant with these people that he's gathered. He's delivered and gathered to himself. Moses goes up the mountain. Moses actually went up the mountain twice. The first time is Exodus 32. The second time is Exodus 34. Well, why did he have to go up twice? Because the first time he went up the mountain, he received the Ten Commandments inscribed by the finger of God on stone, front and back. It was a glorious time. He was up there with God a long time. And they, while he's up there with God, there's some commotion down at the bottom in the camp. And God basically says to Moses, you need to go back down there. They're not rejoicing over me. They have already committed acts of idolatry. So while Moses, it's just, you couldn't be more antithetical. He's up there in the presence of God. Perfect, holy God, enveloped by his presence. He's getting perfect commandments that if obeyed, will make everyone's life blissful. And at the bottom of the mountain is whooping and hollering and excitement from the Israelites who have fashioned into an object to worship gold into a golden calf. Because Moses was up there so long, they thought, well, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. Let's get down to worshiping. And they worshiped a golden calf. A bad habit that they learned from the Egyptians. So Moses comes down the mountain. I don't know how he carried the tablets or how big they are, but they're stone, maybe one in each hand, maybe over shoulder, I don't know, maybe in a satchel of some kind. He comes down, he sees what's going on, and he is hot. Now, I got to tell you, God was upset too. God was angry. As a matter of fact, he said... um, Uh, They're already worshiping idols. I'm just going to wipe them out and make a nation of you. And you will remember that Moses interceded. The mediator interceded. Oh, wait a minute, God. These are your people. You called them out. So Moses goes down. He sees what's happening. And uh, his anger burned hot. (laughs) Has your anger ever burned hot? His anger burned hot and he smashes stone tablets and they break that's it so how angry was he well he was angry enough to smash the stone tablets he was angry enough to to command the people to take the golden calf and crush it and smash it into gold dust however long that took throw it in the water scatter it in the water and make them drink it now how's that taste That's how mad he was. They're they're feeling like a million bucks. I mean, they just drank gold dust, right? So he is really upset. I mean, it's kind of like rubbing the puppy's nose in the the doo-doo that you're trying to train him not to do that. He's really upset. His anger has burned hot. Drink it. So then Exodus 34 describes the second trip up the mountain to meet with God. 
And this time he receives two new tablets, newly inscribed. And yes, they are from God. But this time, because he was in the presence of God, he received uh, glory over spray. There was a transaction that happened and it affected him physically so that in some mysterious way, and there's all different kinds of explanations for it, um, I don't know, but in some mysterious way he glowed because he was in the, what they call the Shekinah presence of God, the glory, and God is light. And he is so glorious in his being that in, in our current status we cannot... Scripture says, if you see God, you'll die. So it's because he's so glorious, we cannot behold that glory in this form. He's got to transform us just in order for us to see how glorious he truly is. So some some mysterious way, the glory, uh, the skin soaks it up so that he is beaming. His face is is, um, illuminated. Now, my face used to get illuminated and thank God it doesn't anymore when I first came up here and preached but it would turn not a glorious glow but a a deep red Uh, and it's true and if you were here 18 years ago to see it it happened Sunday after Sunday I get up here and red flash because I was embarrassed Uh, but we're not talking about that here we're talking about the glory of God Well, Moses was in the presence of God. You know, it's interesting that the reason that he was up there in this way, absorbing the glory of God, just he and God, was because the Israelites had already determined that they don't want direct access to God. He's too fierce. They're too scared of him. I mean, thunder, lightning, smoke coming off the mountain. Why would I want to go up into that? So they were commanded to stay at the bottom. They're like, Moses, here, you talk to him. Here, you get out. You go there. So Moses did, and he was their mediator. But as a result of being the presence of God, he comes down the mountain. And he is uh, glowing with a glory that is obviously from God. And again, now they're scared of Moses. There's something about this glory that Moses came down the mountain with. that It represents God, and they're kind of scared of that. And so Moses veils his face so that they cannot see that. But I say all that in the, in the bottom line of Exodus 34. There's, there's something important here to track along these lines. Is that when Moses spoke to God directly, like when Moses went into what was the tabernacle at that time, the temple wasn't built yet. He goes into the tabernacle to speak with God and that veil goes up, it's removed. Because it it represents this clear, direct, unhindered access to the presence of God. Uh, Clear hearing, clear seeing, clear thinking, clear presence. And though he did put the veil on when he spoke to the people of God more casually, whenever he would come out of the tabernacle with a message from God to the people directly, Guess what he had to do? He was instructed by God to remove the veil. So like it or not, people, when I speak on behalf of God, you are to hear and see clearly what is being said. You are to experience this unveiled. I don't know how uncomfortable it was for them. But I think that's an important point 
that Scripture makes. And it has to do with the idea of, of being unhindered, not obscured, but this clear thinking, comprehending, seeing, so that you know what is transpiring between the people of God and their God. As far as the glow on Moses' face, just for gee whiz information, eventually we know it faded, it didn't stay, but it doesn't say how long that glory on his face stayed. So Paul is thinking about the glory of the old covenant. Now that was cool. That was a neat spiritual experience that only the, the people of God would get to see. You know, when you're part of the kingdom of God, God does things in the midst of his people that other people don't get to see. And so Paul picks up on this analogy, perhaps a simile. And he says, really what is taking place now on a physical level, Moses, his face is veiled. But really what's happening on the spiritual level is that the people's faces are veiled. Or the people's eyes or the people's minds, their hearts are veiled. Why? Well, when the veil is removed, it represents, once again, that clear understanding, clear seeing, clear hearing from God, knowing. And the veil represents, when it's on, uh, an obscurity. I, I, I don't quite get it. I don't quite see it. I don't quite understand it. So, uh, lost in translation, if you will. Lost in the experience and the presence. Uh, it's not a, a, a good hearing. And so you have the veil removed representing pure, the pure presence of God. And then the veil there representing, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Like you're there, but I don't understand it. It's obscured. See, their minds were hardened, he said. And even to this day. When they hear the words, because Moses gave them the words in the Old Testament. And even today, when they hear the same words of Moses, Paul says that same veil is there. But see, now the veil is on them because it's a spiritual analogy. Now, this is very, very important. Because just because the Israelites could see Moses' face and they were in the presence of God and they were with their physical ears hearing the word of God... They didn't all get it. It's like whoo, 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 over their heads. They didn't under what what. I don't know if uh, there's been times when I've spoken to people that aren't saved and I've tried to I've read God's word. I've explained God's word and you can see it is it's a gloss. Like th they don't understand. It's like when my teacher tried to teach me algebra for the first time. Uh, -uh. like none of it was sticking. To my brain. And that happens on a spiritual plane. When it comes from hearing. From the living God. The one true God who has revealed himself. And we cannot be saved without a saving knowledge. Of Christ. And Paul says only Christ can remove that veil. When we put it in these kind of spiritual terms. So though they were in the presence of God, hearing the word of God, it didn't mean that they rightly enjoyed it. didn't mean that they embraced it. didn't really mean that they agreed with it. 
verse 7 in Exodus 32, um, here's what God has to say about his people. Now I'm getting back to the Exodus passage. So the Lord said to Moses, this was the first trip, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. So that's the, the idea or describing um, how you are veiled to God. The reason is it wasn't because God wasn't there wasn't because God wasn't glorious enough or truthful enough or, or present enough. It was because of their own attitude of God, their own understanding of how life worked, their own understanding of how accountable they were to him and what really matters and what doesn't matter. They didn't get it. They were stiff-necked, he says. Hard-headed, we would say, today. And it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem because though you may be present in, in the, among the people of God or even there when God showed up or even there when God's holy word was being read, it doesn't mean that you're in the light. You can still be in the dark. You can still have a hard head and a hard heart. So it, it's not God's issue. He was very attentive to his people. But that wasn't enough. They needed a transformed heart. They needed the veil removed. So Paul wants to make sure that people are understanding it's not the law. It's not what happened with Moses. It's not the tabernacle. It's not the system. It's not the commands. It's the people. It's the stiff-necked people. The commands in God in and of itself is very glorious. But even the, the, that's how hard-headed we can be. Is to even be in the presence of God, perhaps with the Spirit of God moving among us. And we still walk away in the darkness, unenlightened. A New, New Testament might say spiritually dead, hard. How does this happen? The sin of unbelief. We have opportunities throughout our life to trust in God in whatever way He reveals to us. And when we don't, what we've done is we've just put another layer of hardness, another layer of, of failure to embrace the truth. And when you get so many thick layers of living through the obscurity of lies and wrong conclusions and wrong choices, it affects us in this consequential world that we live in, cause and effect world. Now, you would think that anybody that was that close to the miraculous power of God, surely they're going to get saved. And you know in the Old Testament that there were those that did turn to God and they believed in his mercy, that not their works righteousness, but his mercy, and they were saved, of course, looking forward to the Messiah that he would say that he would send someday. But they were genu genuinely saved. And by the way, that's why we can read the psalmist who just I mean Psalm one nineteen, he talks about how much he loves God's word. Now, wait a minute. If God's word is a ministry of death, then why would Old Testament people love it? Well, because 
they were allowing it to transform their hearts because they were saved based on faith and it didn't condemn them. So they loved it. They welcomed God's word as opposed to, I don't want anything to do with that. Just, it's killing me. So there's a difference. Even in the Old Testament, people were transformed. So what does this mean here in the New Testament? Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they didn't understand God. They didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. Whatever, whatever happens in their hearts and minds, whatever they're wrestling with, I do, but I don't kind of stuff. They didn't understand that the intent, what God was really after, the whole purpose of him calling them out, freeing them. And unfortunately, it turned into all of God's beautiful laws and the symbolism and the ceremonies turned into, for some, uh, a path of salvation by works, which is a contradictory contradiction in, in terms in the New Testament because you can't be saved by works. Whereas by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. But they turned it into a system where they could look good, where they could have their own little glory shining upon themselves. Look how grand I am. Missed the entire intent. And again, it's not the law. The problem is with the unwillingness of mankind to repent. So rather than inviting the law to change them, they changed the intent and the system of the law to fit their own sinful hearts. They wanted to uh, kind of enjoy evil but look good on the outside. So it all became an, an external thing. Failure to repent. There's no, I see no room in Scripture, any direction I look, that an individual can be saved by a whole, this holy God of Scripture without repentance. It's just not going to happen. Sorry. New message received. But I, as I was saying, I don't see in Scripture if we... Because repentance is the sign of actually having the eyes of your heart enlightened to how sinful we are and how holy God is. And we're no way going to get to Him in and of ourselves. And so repentance helps us to see everything we need to see more clearly. And I don't see I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that anybody is truly saved without this humble act of repentance. We have to bow. And it's no wonder we, that, that God says in the final day, every knee will bow. And God is who he says he is. So repentance means that we've seen the light. We're guilty, but God's forgiven. So you, you, you think about the Old Testament and the veils and so forth. And Paul said, even to this day. So let's look at to even to this day. Acts fifteen twenty one in the days of the apostle. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in 
the synagogues, Acts 15, 21. So even up to the days of Paul, you're back in Exodus, but all the way, all along, they were hearing God's word in the tabernacle. And then, of course, you know the history where the divided kingdom and then God chastises people and he dispersed them and they lost the kingdom and so forth. And so they resorted to the worship in synagogues where they have a gathering. But God's word is still read. It's still being read in the days of the apostle Paul. In every city where there's Jews, they form a synagogue because that's who they are and it's important to them. So they're still hearing the same words from Moses. So it's not that God had abandoned them, that God was absent, that he, he was so angry he took his tablets or he took all this revelation away and left them to themselves. Everything was still in place. Everything was still there. God was still being faithful. And year after year, generation after generation, Sabbath after Sabbath, God's word is being read. God's word is being heard by the people. And Paul says, even to this day, that veil of obscurity is in place. And Paul knows this because he, he sees it firsthand in his ministry. You'll remember that, that Jesus called the apostle uh, to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so he begins his ministry by going where? In order to reach the Jews with the good news, he goes to the local synagogue as he travels. He finds gatherings of people where God's word will be read. And he looks for opportunities to share the gospel. That was his practice. We see this back in Acts 13, beginning in verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, talking about Paul, I think Barnabas. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. They sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. And then he just gives an incredible sermon. And he ties in the New Testament and he, he exalts Christ. I'll just give you a snippet of this. Verse 36, for David, this is the Apostle Paul giving the word of the encouragement that they asked for. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Wow! There you have the ministry of death. It, did, it kept you in bondage because it didn't give you the power. Beware, verse 40, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. 41, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul's saying, don't let this prophecy come true to you because this is unfolding before your very eyes 42, as they went out, the people begged that these might be told them the next Sabbath. So there were those that loved it. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. But, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, what effect did it have on them? 
they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but... 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So they heard the same, they're in the same place for in the presence of the same God who inhabits the praises of his people. They hear the same scriptures read. And look at the difference. You have some people saying, tell me more. This is watering my dry soul. Tell me more. And others have, are already twisted. There's hatred and jealousy. And they're thinking, wait, that, I can't let this happen. Because it impacts my life in a negative way. It impacts who I've built myself to be. And, and everything that I've thought. It, 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 this this diminishes me it's a threat and so the truth becomes an enemy so how can you be exposed or sit in the same group of people hear the same word of god and have these different responses it's the veil it's the veil it's the obscurity and not getting it and we're not getting it because we are refusing we are fusing the advances of the spirit of god to Open our hearts to the truth, which is we need God. We are broken. We're hurt. We can't do it in ourselves. There's no way to get him without bowing down. And then he lifts us up. But first we have to bow down and confess and admit the reality of the situation. That what God says is true. And no matter what we thought, however clever it was, was wrong. That's how we come to Christ. That's how we get saved. See, unbelief is so dangerous that it just it just ruined all the glory in a sense. Ruins it for us, not for God. He's still there. He's still saving people. But the hard-hearted, boy, talk about lefting, let, uh, getting left out. I mean, it still boggles my mind that the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate, can walk among people and they not even see it. Don't feel the connection at all. Wow, that's scary. So the unbelief. Unbelief in the meaning, the proper meaning and intent of the old covenant. Obscured them, hindered them, made them ignorant of the new covenant. This is what Jesus said in John 5 as we wind down here. He's talking to his people, the Jews. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, 
you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Wow. A people who, from external observation, couldn't love God's word anymore would kill you for defaming the truth of God's word. Don't believe it. The Mosaic law, they, Jesus is saying, you don't even really believe it. That's why you don't recognize me. Whatever you believe, it isn't what you're reading. Man. And Paul speaks from experience. He, he faced this. Their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, that same vow remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. There's the hope. Always comes back to Christ. Man messes it up and God fixes it. Only through Christ is it taken away. It can be lifted by Christ so that we can see God and the glory of God and comprehend His truth and get it. And it can water our souls and transform us and And open our eyes to the blessings of God. There's so many blessings and gifts that God has given us that hard, unbelieving hearts don't see and actually see as the enemy. We're so sin twists us up to see the goodness of God as the enemy, as a threat to us. And Christ can remove that. How? For those that turn to the Lord. See, there's no escaping it. We have to turn to him. We have to admit our need. And we either do or we do not. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Just like when Moses went into the tabernacle, take the veil off. It's just me and you. And I want you to hear and understand and and fellowship and enjoy what I have for you. And the only way we can do that is by turning to Christ. So in essence, Paul's saying like Moses... When a man goes into the presence of the Lord, which, which means he, he turns to the Lord, you're, you're in his presence, you're turning to him, you're seeking him, the veil is removed. And now he is able to see all that he needs to see, all that God would have him to see. Now, we know that there are glories that are reserved for heaven. God, wait for your, for your, your graduation to get all the gifts. But right now we can see everything that God intends us to see for his glory. I mean, have you turned to the Lord? How can I not ask that question after looking at how clearly it is laid out in Scripture? Have you turned to the Lord? When you hear God's word preached, what's happening in here? Are you making excuses, turning against it? I did. When I heard it preached, and I, and I even admitted to, to God who I was avoiding, I know what you're saying is true, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not ready. I'm still having fun in sin. Now, God won that battle. Best fight I ever lost. But I did that. But, but God just, I mean, he weasels he, the spirit. But by his grace... God came and and God saved. So John MacArthur says, The veils removed in Christ, all the pictures, symbols, types, and obscurities, all the mysteries are gone like a fog blown away by a high wind. 
when you come to Christ. In the new covenant reality, the veil's lifted. The new covenant glory is that it looks right into the face of Jesus and sees God's glory. Let me read a scripture so that makes more sense. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul says to them in the second letter uh, that we're going to read soon. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the veil is off. We walk right into the mountain, MacArthur says, right into the presence of God, right into his glory. We're seeing him shining in the face of Jesus without the obscurity. Now we can look into the blazing revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Comprehend his grace. Comprehend his mercy. See, the glory of God is simply his manifest attributes and they're all embodied in Jesus Christ. That's why in John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did we see in Him? We saw glory. What is glory? Grace and truth, the attributes of God manifest in the life of Jesus. So, as Paul says in verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? I think he wants us to be reading this and saying, yes, yes, I see it. Wow, the new covenant. I I thought that was something, but now my eyes are being opened wider and wider to what Christ has accomplished for us. It is more, more, more. So I'll just close with a little personal testimony. I got saved. I think I had, I, I, don't, I don't journal and all that stuff, so who knows the exact dates. But I think, it was, I think I just turned 19. And the Holy Spirit, even though I had kind of told God, I'm not, I'm not going there, I'm not doing this, uh, he had a different plan for me. So I bowed the knee one night. I got saved. I, I, I was pleading for God's mercy, my little arrogant self. Uh, was melted into a puddle of desperation because I did not want to go to hell. And that's what God told me. That's what Scripture says. That's where you go when you don't repent. So I got it. Finally, I was like, ah, that's where I'm going based on the life I have lived. And I've decided that's not where I want to go. And you offer mercy. So please, hey, have mercy on my soul. Well, he did. And I got saved. And my testimony was one of those where, like the old hymns, um, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. It was, that's how it was when the Spirit of God came into me. And I know not everybody's testimony is the same. Um, I, I looked at the world and everything in it with new eyes. So, um, and I felt the weight of sin that, that at, at the moments of my salvation, it was gone. Was like, wow. You know, I mean, I really felt physically different, spiritually wonderful. So um, the next day I was supposed, I've said this before, just quickly. I was supposed to go um, deer hunting with some buddies on our property. I we get up into the tree stand. It's still dark. As soon as it got light enough, I have my pocket New Testament. Gideon's pocket New Testament. As soon as it gets light, light enough, I'm reading it. And God is speaking to me. See, I never heard it that way before. I grew up in a church and God's word went out there, but whew, whew, 
It was a threat. Now it's like, God is speaking to me. This is my heart in this book. How did he do that? Then I go out into the world a few weeks later. I have, I have new eyes and, and I'm in my yard. I grew up in this house. It's still there. I still go visit my mom in that house. It's the only house I ever knew. So I, I can see it in my mind's eye, every little thing. I know where the septic tank pipe is and all that. Anyway, there's this big popular poplar tree. I used to climb as a kid. So I'm an adult now and I'm walking from my house up the, the lane and I come up to this tree and I just am taking a new look at it with my new eyes. And I'm like, I used to climb that tree. It's bigger now. I used to climb that tree. And at this point, you know, I'd been saved, I don't know, maybe a couple months or something. And it was a poplar tree in full bloom. You know, have you ever seen the trees? They actually blossom. I'm like, wow. I never noticed that this tree had blossoms before. I used to climb this tree. I, I, it was like God's gift to me. It was, like I put, it was almost as if God was saying, yeah, I put that tree there for you. You enjoyed it all these years, didn't you? When you come to Christ and the veil is lifted, everything is personal from God to you. Like everything you have is from God to you. Every, every good tasting food, every pleasantry to the eyes, to the, to the senses that God has given us, every good feeling that has a pure motive to it, it's gifts from God to you. And it only gets better as we give our hearts more and more to Christ. He only reveals more glories and increases our sensitivity to the Spirit so that, so that now, whereas at once I... Didn't, I wouldn't know if God was in my midst or not. Oh, now I know. And now I'm grateful for it. More and more and more. So turn. Turn to the Lord. Ask Christ. Beg Christ. Implore Christ to remove the veil of obscurity. So that you can do what God created you to do. Behold the glory of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word.